You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for July 11th, 2021, the seventh Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by John Schultz. It's based on Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Good morning. No need to do any more self-introductions. Father Peter has taken care of that very well. And, uh, but I do want to say at the beginning before my sermon, I'm extremely pleased to be uh, your guest preacher today through the gracious uh, uh, invitation of Father Peter, Reverend Elizabeth, and Father Justin. 55 years ago today was, of course, a very defining moment in my entire life. 55 years ago yesterday, Church of the Twelve Apostles in Rome. And the second one was the day I married my wife, Karen. The third was the birth of our child. Amen. So, we continue uh, Mark's Gospel today. We've been doing that for some weeks. And if you recall, a few weeks back, Mark opened his Gospel with the introduction of John the Baptist. He used the Baptist to introduce his Gospel and introduce John at the same time. And uh, he depicts John as a no-nonsense man who came preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Today, we continue, uh, we're into chapter six. So as we opened it weeks back with John's introduction, today we get his exit out of this life. And true to form, Mark is the master of details. If this account would have been in the other two synoptics, they probably would have said, well, Herod finally got rid of John, or Herod killed John, but not Mark. The same one who two weeks ago went into great detail to say on the storm of the lake of Gennesareth, when Jesus calmed before he calmed it, and Jesus didn't just say he was asleep. He said Jesus was asleep in the stern on a pillow. Now, how good is that? Anyway, today he leaves no stone unturned. He dots all the I's and he crosses all the T's as we learn of John's death. And the gospel account that Reverend Elizabeth just read reminded us that Herod had, had imprisoned John because of speaking out against his marriage. And he called it unlawful. Now, what was unlawful about it anyway? Well, it got rather complicated, and I need to leave out some details because they would be so confusing. But she had been formerly married to Herod's half-brother, Philip, who died. Philip had married his niece. Herodias was Philip's niece. So when Herod married Herodias, he picked up his half-niece for his wife, Salome then, that makes Salome his half-grandniece. Rather complicated and confusing, but that's got to be part of the story because that's where John comes in. A number of the Jews, a goodly number of the Jews at that time, would have had no problem with his niece thing, but John would have none of it. He said, which is not in the account, but it's true, not only was his marriage to Herodias unlawful, it was incestuous because of that relationship. 
And the Greek verb, the tense of the Greek verb, which doesn't really come through in the English, says he repeatedly reminded him that he was in this relationship, which was incestuous and unlawful. And Herod was conflicted with John because he liked to hear him, and yet he was bad for business. He got in his way of holding on to power, and that was everything. And so we have Herodias. She's looking for this opportunity to eliminate the Baptist from the scene. And the account says she saw her chance. Now, she had no idea that Herod was going to get half drunk and in his cups and make that stupid oath before all the guests. She had no idea he was going to pull that. And he really saved her because uh, gospel commentators would tell you, if you read between the lines and know what she was up to for a long time, she, had for a, she set the whole thing up with her daughter. And she was totally unscrupulous and unethical. Unscrupulous is the real word, though. And she was willing to, by chance, trade off her daughter's virtue for an after-hours tryst with Herod. And if that happened, she could work a deal ahead of time, this for that. But she didn't have to do that. Herod saved her, but that's what she was. And so you can imagine, with Herod's total fascination with John, uh, perhaps even his love for him, he was certainly drawn like a magnet to him, as, a, as iron filings to a magnet. Uh, when he gets this word from Salome via Herodias, what, he, what she wanted, no, not the head of John the Baptist. Oh, my heavens. What am I going to do? And if he's conflicted before, he's conflicted now. And he's got a few seconds to work this all out in his head. Yes, no, no, yes. What do I do? I don't want to kill him. And yet, my father has taught me power is everything. If I go back on my oath, on my word in front of all these guests, I lose prestige, I lose respect. I lose some of my power, and I can't afford that. And so she follows through. Whether he later regretted his decision, we don't know, but I can only imagine the next day when he woke up from his drunkenness, he rued what he did. But we don't know. We follow, interesting here, we follow um, centuries later, an interesting story about 1,500 years later, and it's almost identical. The persons play out almost identical roles. And as I said at the nine o'clock, before I even get into this, I feel like I owe a little bit of uh, apology in the sense that I feel like I'm, I'm bringing, uh, singing, bringing Cole to Newcastle or singing to the choir with the history of your Episcopal church. But this is going to be between Henry VIII of England and Sir Thomas More, his Lord Chancellor of the realm. And no need to go into all the details, but Henry is Catholic enough that he wants an annulment because he wants to do it right. He can't work a deal with the Pope in Rome. He's got other problems, and that's why he says no. And so Henry says, okay, I'll do my own thing then. I will get Parliament to declare me 
the head of the Church of England, not you, me, then I can appoint my own Archbishop Cardinal to give me what I need. And so that's the route he goes. And so what does Thomas do? Sir Thomas, being the lawyer that he was, he said, I will not, I, I will not fly in your face, sire. I will simply retire to Chelsea. I will get out of your hair. And he tells his wife, as a lawyer, I will remain silent. I will say absolutely nothing against the king or his plans. I will say nothing against the oath. I will say nothing against his marriage. Therefore, I can't be charged. I can't be indicted. And so he plays this game. And it works for a while. But after some time, some months go by, the advisors get to Henry and they say, Sire, look, don't you realize his silence is bellowing out loudly across the entire realm of England and even across Europe. You can't afford this. So they try to uh, accuse him of, uh, of uh, robbing from the treasury. And he makes them, that's the first round, and he makes them look like fools, and it doesn't work. And so they realize, well, they've got to get a trumped-up charge. So they bribe Richard Rich, kind of a measly individual. He's out for anything he could get, and they realize they've got the right person. And they promise him, okay, if we, if we give you whales, and I don't remember exactly what he was made of whales, but if we can get the king to agree to that, which he did, will you say that you heard Sir Thomas in prison say this? And he does. He perjures himself, so Parliament says, guilty of treason. And in the meantime, Thomas knows that it's over, so he says to Parliament, this is an echo of Herod and John. It's not the oath of supremacy that you want my head and my blood. It's the marriage. It's the marriage. And so he goes to the block saying, I was the king's good servant, but God's first. We do know from the annals, contrary to what we didn't know about Herod, that very quickly, Henry did regret his decision. He who had killed thousands of people and sent them to execution, rued the day that he executed Sir Thomas. But it was done. So what can he do? He blames it all on the goading of his advisors and even Anne Boleyn. They're to blame. I was goaded into it, and I'm sorry. Too late. So what does all this history have to do with us, with you and me? 2,000 plus years ago with John, 1600 years, 600 years ago with Sir Thomas. We probably will never enter a situation where we're confronted with our life on the line like they were. I doubt it. However, we have our own issues that beckon to us and they demand and call out of us a decision. Almost weekly, we hear or we even see very visual pictures, videos of Asian Americans being viciously attacked, all too real. 
Synagogues, there is a, a resurgence of anti-Semitism and synagogues are being spray-painted with swastikas in different states. Mosques are being desecrated. And if you were to go to some areas in my home state of Michigan, uh, the northern part of the lower peninsula and parts of the upper peninsula, you would uh, find out that fishing boats of Native Americans are being bashed in or otherwise rendered useless. And this in the face of violation of treaties that have existed for over 150 years, civil rights violations. Civil rights of black Americans, lastly, are being violated. And I don't need to continue the list. You know it. I know it. It goes on. But these are real, and they're happening. If the, as I was preparing this and making that list, I thought, because one of my bags is teaching Old Testament prophets, if the Old Testament prophets could come back and hear what's going on now, they would have a heyday. So what do we do? There are some of us who are blessed with a personality for being a little more confrontational. And, but you, the trade-off there is your life is not on the line, but maybe your friendship, maybe your relationship with relatives. But some people have that wherewithal. But that's not everybody. And maybe it's joining in a, a walk for social justice, as took place here near about roughly a year ago in New Canaan. And people from different walks in this community joined in that walk. But again, maybe that's too much out there in your face and maybe that's not your thing. And maybe it's a third possibility, what I saw with my own eyes, so not reported to me, but I saw this, because our daughter had one in her yard and so did the next door neighbor and the people across the street and some down the street in New Canaan. The sign said, hate has no home here. Hate has no home here. That was written in four languages. It was written in English. Secondly, it was written in Spanish. Thirdly, it was written in Hebrew. Fourthly, it was written in Arabic. Hate has no home here. But that may be a little bit too much confrontational too with neighbors and maybe that's not your thing. If you have the gift of writing, maybe you choose to write your grievances. That can be very effective. And another thing I thought of as a fifth choice, very real though, uh, we, are all, we have all been privy to derogatory ethnic and racial jokes from time to time, I'm sure. And maybe your response, you say nothing. You say nothing. You don't join in the laughter. You don't laugh either. You just don't laugh. This can cost you. And on one occasion, it did me. With my brother. John, you didn't laugh. So, um, this I mentioned because in 
in imitation of Sir Thomas More, remember sometimes in the right context, silence can be as strong as, if not stronger than words. So the challenges out there are myriad and they call for our decisions and our response. And as former Governor Jerry Brown of California was wont to say, do something, at least do something. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org.